0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball.
1: We recorded this episode live at the 2022 Canadian Surgery Forum in Toronto, Canada.
0: We managed to catch up with the globetrotting colorectal surgeon Dr. Neil Smart right after his in-depth session on peristomal hernias. Dr. Smart, as many of you know, is based out of England and is the current editor-in-chief of the Journal of Colorectal Disease. In this masterclass episode, we delve deep into the management of parastomal hernias, stoma formation itself, and the management of this complex disease. Be sure to check out the study notes below. We hope you enjoy. Can you tell our audience uh, where you grew up and where you did your training
1: so I'm Neil Smart I'm a colorectal surgeon I currently work in Exeter in the United Kingdom although I'm not from Exeter originally I um, went to medical school up in the northeast of England in Newcastle upon Tyne I did my early surgical training up there and then I moved to the southwest of England to do my surgical training in and around Bristol Exeter Plymouth and then I did a fellowship over in Colchester with um, Tant Aralampalam and Roger Motson doing laparoscopic colorectal surgery uh, before eventually taking a consultant job back in Exeter. So, been as a consultant now for all oh, nine years, something like that.
0: Fantastic. And uh, I guess the real question that we have to ask, right off the hop, is which football team do you support?
1: Newcastle United. Newcastle United? Indeed. They're going
0: through a revolution.
1: They are indeed. They're, they're
0: awesome to watch. What's the name? The... Um, he's such a flair player the midfield uh, how can I forget his name uh, he wears usually wears a headband yeah Alonso Maximan say Maximan he's just a joy to watch he's an absolute joy isn't he yeah It's. I, I love watching Newcastle play from what I understand you originally actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon is that right
1: yeah, I mean, I I had a slightly strange path through medical school because I um, did the first two years of med school, which is an undergraduate program in the UK, and took some time out to go and do a PhD in the middle, and I did it in developmental neurophysiology. And at the end of that, as a medical student, I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't it be great to put my PhD to some use clinically? So I explored the idea of doing paediatric neurology, which wasn't really to my liking Um, couldn't really cope with some of the non-accidental injury stuff Mm. and child abuse found that a bit much Um, and then I ended up having some experience with neurosurgery and I thought this is quite good fun and that's what really got me interested in surgery but you know as you go through your postgraduate training you meet some people and I was really fortunate to meet a guy called Mark Mercer Jones who uh, was a colorectal surgeon up in the northeast of England who said to me why don't you come and be a colorectal surgeon and I thought well you seem to have a lot of fun when
0: you do your job so the rest as they say is history. Uh, I mean to our benefit and neurosurgery's uh, d- downfall I guess so, so, so thank you to Dr. Mercer. Um, you are the editor-in-chief of colorectal disease. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on that. You've been there now for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, I started in December 2019. Um, I took over when the previous editor-in-chief, Neil Martensen, uh, demitted because he was um, standing for election as uh, president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, which he currently still is. He's in that position. So, wasn't small shoes to fill, um, so it's quite daunting. But, um, you know, I had Great mentorship from Neil, and before that from John Nichols from St. Mark's as well. So, you know, it's been challenging times, particularly with the pandemic, but immense fun. Been really good fun.
0: Uh, What kind of got you interested in in being the editor in chief and being involved with the journal?
1: So, it started towards the end of my training as a um, surgeon. This is about 2011, and colorectal disease decided that it was going to have what in essence was an internship for a junior editor to get people exposed to the processes behind um, editorial decision making and publishing journals and I applied and was one of uh, two candidates who were successfully appointed uh, along with a guy called Martin Evans, who's a good friend of mine and a colorectal surgeon in Swansea. He's now one of the editors of British Journal of Surgery. And we had a two-year period where we had, it has to be said, quite the most amazing mentorship from the editorial team, people like uh, John Nichols and Najeeb Habubi, who was another one of the presidents of the Association of Coloproctology. And it was... A crash course in how to do peer review, how to get others to do peer review, what to look for in quality of peer review, how to look at what to publish, how to publish it, how you might alter what you do as a journal to try and make yourself more relevant to readers, to improve your citation metrics. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was unparalleled as an experience. I mean, the mentorship went... Deeper than just what you had in terms of, for the journal, from an editorial perspective, it was really about the entirety of your career, how Mm -hmm. to build editorial roles with academia and with your clinical practice. So it was, it was superb. And then... um, After that came to an end, we were invited to stay on as uh, associate editors and we had defined roles with certain aspects of the journal, like doing things like supplements and how to do things that would appeal uh, both financially to readers, advertisers um, and academics or videos and different elements of publishing. So it was a real rounded period of... um, Time for me looking at how to do things better. And then when the opportunity came for looking at the editor in chief role, it was about saying, well, you know, we've had some truly world class, world renowned surgeons, and I, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm in the same league as either of them. Um, but what I thought was that there's a way forward for the journal as we head to um, the new decade about. Mm-hmm being online publications rather than in print, and about being um, journals as they all seem to move towards open access with all the things that have come about through the transformative agreements, the Plan S processes for making everything open access, and the way in which funders were going with mandating that, both in North America and in Europe. And I thought there's some real exciting ways forward here, and that really appeals to me to be able to lead it, that time and to see those changes through into fruition so it was an opportunity that I thought well I can't ignore that if I don't do it now I won't necessarily have that opportunity again so I applied and was fortunate enough to be appointed
0: you know and I'm, um, I'm curious to hear where you think the the journal in particular colorectal disease is going to go in the future and and more in general but one thing I've definitely noticed is uh, the journal has done a lot of amazing things with the YouTube channel like I think colorectal disease, I'm giving a talk later today, and I've used, uh, you know, a clip from one of the, the videos in the journal, and it's it's some really stunning content that's yeah. on the journal. Is that something that you think is going to be, like, kind of the way forward, or what, what other things do you think are in the works?
1: Yeah, so I think from the YouTube channel side of things, I mean, I'm fortunate to have two great editorial colleagues in uh, Sala de Savario and uh, Valera Salantana, who... Run that side of things, and it has been a phenomenal success story. You know, we've now got over sixty thousand subscribers. We've got something like nearly fifteen million views of the content. You know, it's become one of the great fora for um, continuing surgical education about techniques and their implementation. Um, so that's really. Delighted to see, um, because surgeons, by and large, are visual animals. They like to see what is actually done as well as reading descriptions. Um, but I think where we've had a real niche in the market is the fact that everything is peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. It all goes through external peer review process. And you know, this stuff that we reject, this stuff that we accept, we might accept. It's not perfect, but it illustrates a nice point. Some of the videos, particularly the proctology ones, are enormously popular, which have had 3-4 million views because um, it's been traditionally very difficult to get access to some of the training in those techniques because some of them are done in community hospitals where the trainees might not be able to get to if they've got commitments. For like um, uh, theatres in... You know, where they're doing major resectional cases they might not get to do some of the proctology stuff and there's been a constant comment for trainees, certainly in the United Kingdom and in some parts of Europe that their proctology education hasn't been as detailed as perhaps their cancer resection work has been in training so there's been some great opportunities there and do I think it's going to carry on yes do I think it's going to grow I do do I think it's going to change direction slightly I think it will and I explain how There are real moves afoot amongst the academic community about describing and implementing innovation better. Um, There are certainly colleagues uh, at the University of Bristol are looking into how innovation is described and reported. And I think having repositories of new surgical techniques which can be publicly displayed, evaluated, and then... Outcomes documented and in a standardized fashion are really going to come to the fore because patients, perhaps quite rightly, want to move away from being a guinea pig. You know, they want to know that something's going to work or is at least going to be evaluated appropriately. I think um, governance structures around healthcare systems are going to demand the same. We've seen issues globally but particularly in some European countries, about outcomes related to trans-anal TME. And I think that side of things, about how innovation is described and implemented, is going to come to the fore, and videos are going to be at the heart of that. And it's going to be fundamental for future education. So I think it's one of the bits of the journal I'm really happy about, and pleased about. But where else do I think things are going to go? I think un- Undoubtedly, the open access revolution is here to stay. I don't think it's going to go. I think the way in which most of the major funders have gone North America, Europe, Australasia, New Zealand it's going to make all high quality public funded research be open access in the public domain. And I think most journals will probably go to that model across the board when do i think while the original declarations were hoping that that would have happened by 2023 2024 the pandemic's kind of put pay to that i think it's going to be delayed i don't think everyone will have gone in that direction by the end of this decade but i think certainly the majority
0: will have done i could talk to you about this all day you know i think there's so many neat things that are happening in In research and I'm particularly a huge fan of of the video and so I totally agree I think if we don't put into place some some ways that we're going to monitor uh, innovation and video is going to be I think at the heart of that I think some someone else will do it for us Uh, but I think I would do a disservice to our listeners to not ask you if you have any of your real pearls of wisdom or tips and tricks in terms of um, things that you look for in high quality research things that you think uh, like that Now, having been in the editor-in-chief role, there are some really important, I think, messages and communication that you want to um, put out to people when trying to publish good quality research.
1: So I think the landscape in surgery has changed dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. Traditionally, surgeons were quite a competitive bunch, and it was not unusual to find a drive amongst surgical units to publish their data. And so we got a lot of single institution, predominantly retrospective case series. And the difficulty is it's not widely applicable. People don't have the same referral basis or the same practices or volumes. And it didn't really take things forward for either the patients or the surgeons. The world has changed and I think where we've moved to now is collaboration and we've seen a big shift in terms of surgeons getting together, pooling their data across a variety of units, within a country, between countries and now pooling data from around the globe so that they can talk about what happens more meaningfully for the average patient in the hands of the average surgeon in the hands of the average hospital, i.e. it's not just about taking your bell curve of surgical performance and stretching one of the tails out to the far right hand side, it's now about shifting the entire bell curve to the right so that patients across the board get better outcomes. And those collaborative studies, frequently covering thousands or tens of thousands of patients. And often hundreds of collaborators are the things that are delivering research papers that are infinitely more impactful. So as an editor, when I'm looking for something, if someone comes to me and goes, here's our units data from the past 20 years about this rare condition, and we've got 20 patients, and these are our outcomes, I might go, so what? No, thank you. But if you come to me and say, here's this snapshot study of 500 hospitals from around the globe who've looked at this, and here's the data on 1,000 patients and what happens to them, I go, I'm interested. The world's moved. And I think surgeons have to get used to moving with the times. So sad as it may seem, particularly to some units that were particularly intent historically on publishing... Their data. Increasingly, editors are not that fussed. We want data from across the board. Tell me what happens at a big level, across nations, across regions.
0: That's. I think that's brilliant, and I uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think you know one of the th- the topic that I the clinical topic that we want, wanted to review with you on this episode is about peristomal hernias. I think peristomal hernias is a great example of. You know, uh, uh, a, a clinical scenario where people will publish their results and say, "Oh, this is you know this is not so great." This is these are our outcomes, and people try to replicate that and really aren't able to. Um, so, uh, you know, I think peristomal hernia is a great uh, paradigm example of that. Um, so, for our listeners, especially our medical student listeners and our resident listeners uh, who may be listening to this, can you define for us what is a peristomal hernia?
1: Um, it's a great question, and. <laughs> Perhaps the answer to that is no. I mean, there's an official definition from the European Hernia Society about it's a protrusion of the intra-abdominal contents through the trifying in the abdominal wall that was made to allow the uh, afferent stem or limb to pass. But I think there are many people who are perhaps uncomfortable with that definition because it explicitly excludes the problems that arise from what may be described as a siphon loop or subdermal prolapse of that afferent stomal limb into the uh, subcutaneous fat. Um, our colleagues in Denmark have tended to emphasize that any bulge around a stoma is probably important to a patient and what drives them to seek um, healthcare and is probably a better definition. So a bulge adjacent to a stoma is probably the one that is more meaningful to patients and the one that we should probably look towards.
0: So, I mean, just to back up a little bit, um, you were telling me a little bit before we started the the show about um, your sort of your practice and what was it about peristomal hernias that sort of drove you to study this problem?
1: So I do predominantly from a colorectal perspective, I do rectal cancer surgery and you know the national data from the united kingdom which is very clear from the national bowel cancer audit for all the rectal cancers that we have which is mid and low rectal cancer is what it collects data on your probability of having a stoma for that cancer at some point and about 18 months down the line is 50 percent so i create we create as a community of colorectal surgeons in the uk a lot of stomas and despite the fact that there are all these fancy new techniques that have come along in the past decade Mm -hmm. and all the things that you can do to try and treat rectal cancer our rates of stoma formation for rectal cancer have not fallen they've not shifted one bit not moved at all so i know people might think that you can avoid doing stomas in certain circumstances but on a population level zero impact we create lots of stomas, and I was creating lots of problems because all these patients were coming back two, three years down the line. They had bulges, they had pain, they had discomfort, they had poorly fitting appliances, they had leaks. They were miserable, and I was curing their cancer, and that's great, but I was leaving them in a situation where I cured the cancer, but I'd left them with a terrible quality of life, and that wasn't a win. It's not just about winning that battle with cancer. It's about winning the peace and that post-operative recovery. And that's what I was trying to do better. And that's what really drove me to think, one, how can I make stomas better so that I don't end up giving them a hernia in the first instance? And two, once they've got a hernia, what can I do to try and make them better and certainly to try and avoid making them worse, which sometimes happens. So... That's what really drove it. It was the clinical problem that I was seeing in front of my eyes that drove me towards thinking, well, I really need to look at this in more detail.
0: And one with, I think we'll come back to this at some point because, you know, uh, you, you're running some really big studies. And I think one of the unique things about what you're doing is trying to look at the patient perspective, which is, I think, something that we fail to do a lot of the time. But I'm curious, when you're seeing a patient in the in the clinic or in the office uh, with a peristomal hernia, what are the symptoms that... Uh, you're looking for or you're interested in is it you know are, are you I, I, get, I gather the sense you're not like okay here's a bulge I got to fix it right uh, what are the things that really in your mind are important to try to suss out if, if someone uh, is referred to you with a peristomal hernia or you notice a peristomal hernia?
1: so the thing that I think I've got the ability to correct from an operative perspective as opposed to a non-operative perspective is pain And patients often describe pain and dragging sensations. And they're the things that you stand a better chance of being able to improve. The cosmetic aspect I don't think should be discounted. Because it does impact a number of patients quite profoundly. uh, And particularly those who are younger and of working age. And they find it quite debilitating. It stops them living active fulfilling lives and so I think that is something that I do take heed of although it probably isn't the primary thing that will make me want to operate but I try and tease apart from what the patient tells me about how their quality of life is adversely impacted by the parastomal hernia and what it is that they want to achieve from the management strategy that we'll agree together Particularly if it's surgery, and then what degree of risk are they prepared to accept, in order to achieve that improvement, and that helps me figure out what might be the best strategy for that individual patient.
0: So, like, what are the things that uh, indicate to you that you need to just watch this person with a personal hernia, that quote-unquote watchful waiting, which I think you you've taken issue with, or and which are the things that are you're really gonna pursue, and this is a difficult question to answer, but who are the patients that you're not going to operate on, as I guess what I'm asking?
1: So patients who perhaps have a very high um, degree of comorbidity and for whom surgery would be very high risk and would have a substantial risk of mortality or further morbidity from surgery. I think you always have to be very cautious. Uh, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Um, So that group, I think, you know, we've got very good now, I think, as a community of assessing these patients better through shared decision-making processes, joint with um, anesthetists or anesthesiologists, whatever you want to call them, perioperative care physicians, and we can do things to help elicit what degree of risk there is and quantify it by using things like cardiopulmonary exercise testing you know you can use risk predictors that exist a number of different models that are out there so i think we've got very good at that and that's very often useful and quite sobering for patients when they sit down and are told you know your actuarial life survival is i don't know On average you could reasonably expect to live for three years and your mortality from an operation is say 10% your morbidity would be 80% your chances of being more dependent after an operation is 50% you know so if you're at home independent now there's a 50-50 chance you'd end up in a nursing home dependent on care those types of figures which we can now give to patients and we're pretty good at doing that they're quite sobering and they help people concentrate their minds about what level of risk is acceptable to them. Um, so picking who not, to, who not to operate on, I think it's become a bit clearer. Saying who to operate on is quite difficult. Um, I think people who really can't work, particularly when they're young and they've got... Um, families to support, you know, they've got all of those financial obligations, they've got children whom they're trying to look after, they've got a service, all of the things that life throws at them, mortgage and everything else. And you've got a really good indication for that group of patients who've got large hernias, who have got a lot of pain and discomfort and are struggling to leave the house, and their um, conservative measures, such as support garments, really haven't helped them. I think those patients, I think you've probably got a lot to offer. It won't be fixing the hernia in perpetuity because we know that the recurrence rates are high, but your probability of giving them a better quality of life and giving them a quality of life that works for them and their families, I think is quite good. So they're the ones where I think you've probably got the greatest win. Um,
0: Yeah, and... You know, we'll, I think we'll, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you about then your planning, particularly uh, about imaging. But I want to, again, to take another step back. And one of the things I th- found most interesting about your talk was actually talking about stoma formation. I think that's a piece that we often forget about when we're talking about peristomal hernias. Um, and as you pointed out in your talk, you know, the way that we created or the techniques that we use for creating stomas hasn't really changed in a very long time. Uh, and you're doing a big study, uh, the, the cipher study, looking at that, uh, at, at stoma creation. Are there any pearls that you've been able to extract in terms of how to actually create a good stoma?
1: So I think the challenge is that much of the data we've had um, up until this point has all been retrospective, poor quality, and isn't really reflective of contemporaneous practice. Um, what should we do in the world where most of our colorectal resections are now minimally invasive certainly in the developed world I think it's difficult to say what's the right way to do something the one thing I will say is that your best opportunity for giving someone a really good quality stoma is the first time that you make it and I think what struck me when I was starting out on this journey was How often the stoma creation is left to perhaps some of the most junior surgeons in the operating theatre at the end of the operation, when surgeon uh, uh, boss might say, "Well, I'm tired because I've done all the difficult bit down in the pelvis. I'm going to leave the trainees to close the wounds and make the stoma and." Often the level of supervision and training hasn't been there and certainly I think in the past that was the case. I think there's been a big culture shift over the past decade probably for the better but invariably there's probably more variation out there in practice than any of us would like to admit. I think many of the patients would probably be quite um distressed to hear that their stoma was created by the most junior surgeon who might have only seen it done once or twice before and certainly that used to happen happened to me when i was a trainee um and i think many of them go well something that is so profoundly influencing on my long-term quality of life how can it be um left to someone and i think that has to probably change So, having senior people around and supervising matters. I think, uh, in terms of creating the stoma itself, I spout even the colostomies just a little bit so that you get a better appliance fixation and seal. Not as much as I would do in ileostomy, but making it about five millimeters proud of the skin is probably best. Um, I use a rapidly absorbable bit of braided suture material but i try not to go through the mucosa so that you don't get those implantation islands around the mucocutaneous junction try and do all the sutures into the skin subdermal rather than through the skin to avoid that as well Um, and i don't do any fixation of the serosa of the bowel to the uh, anterior rectus sheath i don't think it makes any difference I don't route the stoma through an extra peritoneal approach because I think it's difficult to do, particularly laparoscopically. And when you've created your hole in the peritoneum, usually you've just left a space where small bowel can herniate into and they end up with bowel obstruction. And I've seen that on more than one occasion. So that's not something I've tended to favour, although I know that there are some people who will say very clearly that if they do extra peritoneal routing that you do get lower rates of parastomal hernia formation, I'm not convinced um, do we use prophylactic mesh? I do in patients who are having end colostomies formed for rectal cancer or anal cancer, I do put prophylactic mesh in, particularly if they've had neoadjuvant radiotherapy of any description because of the impact on wound healing, I want to try and avoid those problems of uh, patients getting uh, parastomal hernias because you've created a trifying through a bit of tissue which frequently has had low dose radiotherapy to it and the radiotherapy fields even the modern ones which are located and focused down on those low rectal cancers the entirety of the abdominal wall gets irradiated to some degree so they all have worse wound
0: healing afterwards
1: so yeah I are powerful, you, like, do, do use prophylactic mesh
0: still put you know like they, they have these tech figures in the textbook where they show these you know hernia estoma triangles trying to locate it at the rect, uh, you know at the rectus muscle above or below the, the umbilicus are those things that's kind of
1: your decision-making as well? So having the stoma created at the site where the stoma care nurse is marked preoperatively, I think is really important because it's in the place which is the best place for the patient and that takes into account all sorts of different things like their body habitus, how they like to wear their clothes, what type of clothes they like to wear and Having something that can be looked after easily, which the patient can see, not have to be dependent on using mirrors to change appliances is really important for the patient quality of life. And I think we know that. In terms of um, those classic descriptions in the textbook about that stoma triangle, I mean, I think the days of seeing patients with body mass indices between 20 and 25 having low rectal cancer is increasingly rare. Um, Not saying it never happens, it's just that... Most of my patients have high body mass and disease because the obesity epidemic is global across most high-income nations now. And so it's not uh, unusual to see people with at least a body mass index of 30 and frequently higher, 35, 40, because we know obesity is a risk factor for rectal cancer. So, you know, realistically, are they still relevant? I don't think so very often. Um, if you're going to create a stoma... It tends to be above the arcuate line of Douglas. Um, Better support for the stoma as it comes through. I've tended to make it through the body of the rectus muscle. Um, I've tried to avoid going lateral to the rectus sheath. um, And I've not been convinced about some of the techniques where people argue about rooting the muscle around the lateral border of the rectus abdominis muscle. I think you get denervation injuries if you retract medially because of the way in which we know the rectus muscle is innervated, so I haven't gone for that. I do place prophylactic mesh in the retrorectus plane for the majority of those patients.
0: How's the news about the prophylactic mesh? Where you So you presented some pretty compelling data about the use of pro- prophylactic mesh in the sort of elective setting. When you're using prophylactic mesh, where are you putting it? How are you putting it? What kind of mesh are you using?
1: So it tends to go in the retrorectus plane. I tend to use the cheap polypropylene midweight mesh that we tend to use for inguinal hernia surgery. It tends to come in a standard size, which is about 7.5 centimeters by 15 centimeters. The rectus sheath is usually about. Well, seven centimeters in width on average, so it's ideal. You know, you can um, trim it lengthways so that you've got an acceptable length, but you'll get an ideal width just the way it comes. I tend to have a circular trofin in the middle of the uh, mesh for a end colostomy. That trefine is usually twenty to twenty-five millimeters, depending upon the size of the patient and the bowel that you're bringing through, and it's. Slightly larger than the Trefine in the anterior posterior rectus sheath that I would make. Um, I tend to take a disc of skin, take a little bit of the subcutaneous fat, but not much. I make a circular incision about twenty millimeters in the anterior rectus sheath. I separate the fibres of the rectus abdominis and then create the retrorectus plane by sweeping the finger in a circular fashion underneath it. And then I place the mesh using um, a clip to make it lie flat, make a circular hole in it, and then make my incision in the posterior rectus sheath and then pull the uh, stapled off end of bowel through. So, you know, the bowel stapled off, there's no risk of bowel content, spillage or contamination, and you pull it through and then form your, cure your stoma. And uh, you don't
0: have to do any fixation because it's in the... It's in the retroactive
1: plane, absolutely. So you don't need to. The pressures on the abdominal wall from intra-abdominal pressure and from the muscles alone will hold it in place.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, this is, again, getting very nitty-gritty, but a lot of the time we're doing this laparoscopically. So are you creating the stoma aperture on the posterior sheath laparoscopically at all, or are you doing this all from from the stoma opening itself?
1: Yeah, I've tended to think that the um, stoma site is absolutely sacrosanct. Um, And I try and avoid using the stoma site for anything else. I don't convert port sites. I don't extract specimens through the stoma site. I do nothing. The stoma site is absolutely sacrosanct. You get the one opportunity to get it right first time. And if you mess that up, it's gone. So for me, you... You know, it's the one thing that the patient is going to have to live with for the rest of their life. In almost all cases, you know, you have to get it right. Because if it goes wrong in any way, shape, or form, in, you're in, well, the impact you have on their quality of life is profound.
0: And are you changing the diameter of your trephine to match the caliber of, this, of the bowel? Because, you know, we've, we've all seen some people who have slightly larger colons or slightly larger small bowel... Um,
1: yeah, the fatty mesentery is really problematic and we see that increasingly and yeah, you do have to make um sometimes you do have to make the um larger in order to accommodate because the one thing you don't wanna do is to have any narrowing or pinching because then you get things like problems with erosions, strictures and you want to avoid
0: that if at all possible. Right, so a little bit of playing play to size things for the colon or the bowel is important
1: yeah i mean a millimeter or two larger is normally all that you need but you don't need to um have things so big that it won't help reinforce the trifying that you've made you need to make sure that ultimately that the mesh is going to do what you want it to do which is to provide as the body heals, it's got to have that degree of tissue ingrowth, scarring,
0: fibrosis
1: that will help stabilize the trafine in the abdominal wall and stop it getting larger over time.
0: All right. So I think those are some pretty important pearls for anybody listening to this, whether you're a colorectal surgeon or a general surgeon that has to make these stone that's just uh, adhering to those principles, uh, I think it's just critical. So going back to that patient that you're seeing in the clinic um, who you think needs an operation, mm-hmm. are you doing any imaging on these patients? So when they've
1: got a hernia yeah I mean for me uh, CT is everything um, there's a number of things that you're looking for the first is um, I don't like surprises um I don't like them at all I like to be forewarned I want to know what's going on so I want to know the size of the trafine I want to know how big the sack is I want to know what's in the sack And I want to know what else is going on in the abdominal cavity. And a lot of the time, if you're going to do something for these patients and you're going to use mesh to help reinforce any repair that you do, it's going to make doing further laparotomies in future more difficult. So you want to make sure that you've found that occult second malignancy. You want to make sure that you've identified whether there are any metastatic deposits, anyway, you know, you kind of need to know all that up front because there might be other things going on that are going to take precedence. Um, again, are there any issues with um, other diseases that might need treatment, you know, particularly in the male population if they've been uh, smokers then there's a question as well as have they got an abdominal aortic aneurysm is anything gonna need dealing if you do something are you going to take away the options that your vascular colleagues may want to have in a year or two's time you just need to make sure that you've got all the bits of information and available to you and if there is an issue about why did the patient have the index stoma in the first instance, have you excluded any problems? So, for example, if it was inflammatory bowel disease and they've got a paraileostomy hernia, is there any signs of any problems due to Crohn's disease intra Are you certain it was ulcerative colitis? You need to know those kind of things. If they had their stoma for FAP, are there any desmoid tumors? You know, just take away all of the guesswork and no. And then when you've got your CT, you're looking for elements surrounding the parastomal hernia itself and then any other hernias of the abdominal wall. Have they got an incisional hernia at either a port site or an extraction site in the midline? Or if they have a midline laparotomy for it, have they got incisional hernias there? Because it can influence what you might do and how you might approach things. So,
0: Totally. And you know, one of the things that you talked about in your talk was about the risk factors for developing these. And I think most of us would know many of these risk factors for poor wound healing. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, for the obese patient, diabetic patient, obviously when you're they have the rectal cancer, you can't really do much. You got to go in and do their operation. Typically, if you're considering a peristomal hernia repair, you have time if in an elective setting to think about what what operation you're going to do and optimizing factors are there things that you do that you tell the patient that they need to optimize before you'll consider doing an operation such as losing x amount of weight uh, stopping smoking things like that yeah
1: absolutely so i think for us um smoking cessation is absolutely non-negotiable if you don't stop smoking you don't get a hernia repair Um, and i think most hernia Centres in the United Kingdom are fairly clear about that now. Where uncertainty exists is about um, nicotine replacement therapies and um, which ones are acceptable to different clinicians. Um, I think, from my perspective, the role of the traditional nicotine replacement therapies that we saw, so things like patches, gum um lozenges i think you know we've got extensive evidence from multiple surgical specialists now that they do not adversely impact wound healing so they're fine so if your patient is using those to give up smoking absolutely great i'm very happy with that the controversy controversy exists around the use of electronic cigarettes and vaping um Largely because there isn't a standardized form about what that is. The things that are in existence in Europe are different from the ones that exist in uh, North America, for example. Um, From a UK perspective, I've tended to say I can live with people who vape, if that's the nicotine replacement therapy that they need to get off smoking. The things that cause the damage to wound healing are predominantly the tar. It's not the nicotine per se. So if the vape gets them off, I'll say it's good risk reduction. It's not a no risk option, but it's a substantial risk reduction. You know, 90-95% plus. So I'll take that. And I'm a pragmatist. I think you have to be. You know, you can't be an absolutist on these things. So I'll accept vaping. Not everyone well I know there's intense debate about that weight reduction wise yes we try and work with patients um, with dietitians and in cases where need to be with our colleagues who do bariatrics um, trying to get a patient weight down to a body mass index of less than 35 if we can will help but it's not always feasible it depends on the starting point point. Uh, and in addition to that it, oh, Prehabilitation, I think, is increasingly recognized as being important, not just from um, the wound healing side of things, but also about cardiorespiratory complications across the board. Um, So I think nowadays dedicated graduated exercise programs have become increasingly the norm. You know, we're not asking patients to go out and run a marathon or, you know, win the Tour de France or anything like that. But we want them to do the lifestyle modifications. Now, what proportion of patients buy into the whole program? 50%. There's a lot who don't. There's a lot who continue to eat very poor diets, who put on weight despite trying to lose it. They continue to smoke. They won't um, buy into the whole scheme. And in those patients do I go ahead and operate, no, I don't. Not unless they present as a life-threatening emergency. Why not? Well, because the outcomes we know are so poor. And many of the patients struggle, but they go, well, how can it be worse than this? Well, it's the golden rule of surgery, and we all know it. You always have the capacity to make someone worse, not better. And, you know, sadly, you know, I've learned those lessons the hard way, just as every other surgeon does. I've got my collections of skeletons in the closet of people where it's gone truly horrifically wrong and I've lived with the bitter regret of intervention and I wish it sat on my hands, Lesson learned.
0: We all have our little graveyards that we uh, that we visit from time to time. We certainly. do indeed. Um, so what, now you've made the decision, you, you've optimized the patient as much as you can. What's the operation that you're going to do? And I, I know this is a huge topic. Uh, you just spent the better part of an hour talking about this. Are there any, tech, like, tell us your thoughts about local revision of stomas. Are you a sugar baker guy, are you doing these lap or open? What, what's sort of your preferred approach?
1: Okay, so first, the easy thing to talk about is the emergency situation. Someone is in extremis; they've got incarcerated hernia with obstruction, or they've got dead gut in a strangulated parastomal hernia. They're quite easy situations. You're there to save the patient's life and relieve the obstruction. So in those situations don't do anything clever, do what you have to do if it's dead gut, cut it out or divide the adhesions, do a local repair, get out of a difficult situation, get them out of hospital alive and well and come back another day for a definitive repair at another time. There is no such thing as an emergency transversus abdominis release. Don't go there. Don't try and do anything clever. And in fact, I'm even at the stage of saying, don't even think about using mesh in those circumstances because you've got to get the patient out of hospital alive. And don't go using expensive things like biologic meshes or the fancy bioabsorbables or anything like that. Keep it simple, stupid. Focus on your goal. Get the patient out of hospital alive. Well, do I like relocating stomas? No, I avoid it if I can at all help it because... um, If you're not careful, they end up with parastomal hernia at the new site, an incisional hernia at the old stoma site, and an incisional hernia at a laparotomy that you made to move it. So avoid that at all costs, unless the patient can't see the stoma and look after it. Um, What else do we do? Well, it depends then if you're doing a planned operation on what the index operation was and what it was for. the Commonest thing that we tend to see are patients who've got... Uh, a paracolostomy hernia having had a um, laparoscopic abdominal perineal excision for low rectal cancer. Now, for many of those patients, they will have a European Hernia Society Class 1 parastomal hernia. So, usually with bits of omentum, occasionally with bits of small bowel come through the trafine, reducing the contents. There's an argument about whether or not you should do a hybrid approach and excise the sac through a hemicircumferential mucocutaneous incision, closing or tightening the trefine, and then doing something like a sugar baker approach. It's a good option. It has a role. And for many patients, particularly if they are older in years... And I've got one or two comorbidities. Doing um, a minimally invasive approach has got a lot of advantages. It reduces their chest complications. Will it work well permanently? Don't think anything really does, but it offers a lot for that group of patients. And I think in terms of bang for buck of what you're trying to achieve, it's got a lot to offer. If you've got someone who had open surgery as their index. Procedure, say for example, they had faecal peritonitis, they had uh, a laparotomy and a Hartman's procedure, and they've got medical problems that mean, for example, that you wouldn't want to necessarily consider re anastomosing them and restoring their GI continuity. And The patient wants to keep their own colostomy, In, but they've got a European Hernia Society class 4 parastomal hernia they've got a big incisional hernia they've got a large parastomal hernia they've got almost anterior abdominal wall failure that group of patients as long as you've dealt with the bioburden of all the previous contamination open surgery retrorectus mesh um, tends to be permanent synthetic mesh midweight acroporous polypropylene nothing particularly fancy uh, is what I would tend to use. Does it matter whether you use a um, circular trifying, or Does it matter whether you use that extra peritoneal sugar baker or Pauli approach? Um, I'm not certain that we've got enough data to say at the moment. I've done both. Um, Risks and benefits to the different ones. It depends upon what it looks like at the time. I've got no hard and fast rules. If it looks right, it probably is right, is probably the best thing to say. I do have some concerns about the role of the sugar baker technique in an extra peritoneal plane in the long term. I don't think we have the data yet to say that it is truly safe mm-hmm. and what the mesh against the bowel is like, particularly if they've been things like, lots of adhesiolysis if they've got those micro abrasions across the serosa it does leave me a little bit uncomfortable so in that group have I done anything different well occasionally I have used one of those small pieces of a bioabsorbable type mesh to act as a barrier so I have done that not particularly scientific does it work I think time will tell I think it's difficult
0: it's, a, it's certainly a really tough problem and maybe hopefully, you know, people like yourselves and, and future people will continue to work on this problem because it's clearly not a problem that's going away and we don't really have great solutions, uh, you know, at least at, at currently um, in terms of long-term success. I, I think you've done some amazing work. I, I think I would be remiss not to mention and ask you about some of the, the work that you're doing. You talked about two of these huge studies that you're doing. With the Cipher and PRO, Profer studies, yeah. if I'm wrong, can you tell us a little bit about those studies and what you're uh, working on with those studies in particular.
1: So the Cipher study was um, a UK government-funded study from the National Institute of Health Research, and it was to look at the rate of parastomal hernia formation in terms of definitions through a CT scan and through patient symptomatology. Uh, at a minimum of two years follow-up. And I think our median follow-up will be well over three years because of the pandemic. Um, and we were to look at the patient factors and all the technical steps index stoma formation and to see what predisposed patients to developing a parastomal hernia and how it impacted their symptoms and what happened to them. So we're in the follow-up phase of that at the moment. We've just collated and... Um, Final patient questionnaires in terms of quality of life questionnaires symptomatology questionnaires and we've also just collated all of the CT scans so we've got about 8,000 CT CT scans sequentially across the 2,500 patients so we'll be able to describe more accurately the natural history radiologically of what happens to these hernias, do they enlarge with time do they get bigger with time So it gives us the opportunity to think about what might happen in an index operation and how it relates to the rate of change of size of the stoma trafine and how it relates to hernia development, whether things that we can advocate not doing or to do when creating a stoma might be useful. might also allow us to figure out that if you make a stoma one way, might not alter the rate of parastomal hernia, but it might either increase or decrease your risk of having worse symptoms and coming to need a repair. So all of those things I think will be really useful for surgeons when deciding what techniques to employ when they create stomas and will help give better outcomes for their patients. Trying to do something that's directly impactful for the patient and make life better for them. In terms of what to do, Once you've got a parastomal hernia, um, I'm really struggling with the fact that I don't think any of us have got any great quality data. and I don't think we really know what to do, either in terms of the surgical technique to use, nor the type of mesh that we should use and where we should place that mesh. So the PROPHEL study is designed to look at management techniques for patients, whether they be conservative, done through expert stoma care nursing, whether it's altering the type of appliance that they have, is it altering some of the support garments that they need? Is it doing exercise and um, weight reduction techniques in a conservative manner? Does that help manage their earnings better? There's all of that versus all the operative interventions. And it's really just to try and catch patient-level, uh, patient-reported outcome data in terms of the different management strategies. Because if we're not measuring what matters to patients... How do we know whether what we're doing is actually making any sort of difference? You know, we might quite conceivably come along and operate on these patients and go, Look at me, I'm the man with the golden hands. I fixed your hernia, and it's not come back when either I examine your abdomen or on the CT scan. But the patient turns around and goes, That's true, doctor, but my life is a misery because I've had. 15 admissions to hospital over the past 12 months with adhesions of my small bowel to the mesh that you've implanted in me and it's made my life a misery and I'm in chronic pain. I can't work. I can't leave the house. But you don't have recurrence. I've made a successful operation, haven't I? I think our definitions of success need to be revised and I think the definition of success that we should look at is the one the patient says is a
0: success that's fantastic and i'll uh, put the show notes in uh in the or the links in the show notes so that patient, people can find your studies i know that you're you're still recruiting for the ProFor study and, and people around the world can contribute patients to that
1: absolutely the european society of color proctology who are running it um are really keen to have contributors from around the globe I think what's really important to say about it is that I think it's the first time that we've seen a study that has been predominantly designed by a patient who herself has had six parastomal hernia repairs and much of what we've decided to do has been borne out from her experiences and lived experiences of being a patient going through this process. So It's been brilliant to work with Sue Blackwell. I mean, she's been an absolute inspiration to many of us on the team involved. And it's been having uh, the opportunity to take her expertise as a patient and marry it together with expertise of surgeons, clinical trials units, statisticians, trial managers, and to come up with something which is, we hope, relatively simple and straightforward for all healthcare professionals who are participating in the care of such patients to contribute to so it's not just surgeons it could be the stoma care nurses any healthcare professional can contribute that's what we're really
0: after it's been absolute delight absolutely delightful conversation with you today Um, and one of the questions we always like to ask our guests at the end of the show is if you could go back in time to your days as a senior trainee or maybe an early attending and give yourself advice knowing what you know now Is there any advice that you would give your former self?
1: Um, I think the only thing I would say is that it's meant to be fun. And if what you're doing isn't fun and you're not enjoying it, you're doing it wrong. And I've been really fortunate. I mean, I've been an incredibly lucky man. I work with great teams in my hospital. I work with great teams um, editorially and around the globe doing some of the research that I do. I've been a, very fortunate person and it has been immensely rewarding partly because it's been so much fun and i think the people who make it fun more than anyone else is the patients you know and seeing the rewards from making their lives better is what really drives it forward and so i'll just say to people enjoy what you do because it's a great career
0: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CamJSurge. Thanks again.